next on ReachMD. Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from medical professionals on the front lines of healthcare. Now here's the host of Voices from American Medicine, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. The Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, was passed in 2010 to provide more Americans access to affordable quality health insurance and to reduce health care spending. But have these goals actually been met? And if not, what will it take to get us there? You're listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me today is Jim Capretta, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, studying healthcare, entitlement, and U.S. budgetary policy, as well as global trends in aging, health, and retirement programs. Mr. Capretta has directed several major studies, including one on reforming U.S. healthcare according to market principles and consumer choice. Mr. Capretta, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you today. It's great to have you with us. So let's just start with a general question. How is healthcare doing today from your vantage point with Obamacare in the picture? Well, the the law, the Affordable Care Act was passed, you know, more than six years ago. It was full implementation began in 2014. So we're really only two and a half years going on, you know, going on our third year now of full implementation of the law. So it's a little bit hard to tell how this is all going to play out, you know, over a longer period, which is really what it should be measured by, 5, 10, 15 years. But having said that, we can take a preliminary look at some of the data and figure out what's going on. One of the objectives of the law was to increase the number of Americans who are enrolled in health insurance. It has done that to some degree. I think it's clear from the data that most of the new enrollment that has occurred, and it's probably around 17 to 20 million people who have health insurance that wouldn't have otherwise, that a good portion of that, perhaps as many as 12 million, are enrolled in the Medicaid program. So one of the main features of the ACA was a very large expansion in Medicaid to households in states that elected to take the option up to 138% of the federal poverty line. And that has brought into insurance coverage many, particularly single adults without children who previously were left out of Medicaid, but now can get onto Medicaid because their incomes are quite low and now qualify for Medicaid coverage in the states that have taken that option. So that has increased by a large number the size of the Medicaid program and also people with health insurance. Now, I think some of us think that increasing insurance coverage through the Medicaid program, you know, is is sort of a two-edged sword in a sense that Medicaid has got some fundamental problems associated with it. And so using it as the primary vehicle to expand insurance coverage, from my perspective, was not ideal. I would rather have seen Medicaid get reformed first and then expanded potentially so that, you know, currently right now it, it pays such low fees to the providers of services that it provides a very restricted benefit to participants in the program. So yes, a lot more people are now on Medicaid and they do have health insurance and protection to some degree from that coverage, but that doesn't give them access to every physician in every hospital in the country. Uh, In fact, many, many physicians steer away from Medicaid as best they can. So it's a positive step from the perspective of the proponents of the ACA, but many of us believe Medicaid needs some fundamental reform as well. The other thing I would say about the ACA and and general point about uh, where it's left us, lots of attention is focused on the coverage expansion and 
the exchanges and the insurance system. But another very big part of, of the law was expansion of the federal government's authority to try to direct and steer hospitals and physicians and how they're taking care of patients through the Medicare program. For instance, the efforts to push in the direction of what are called accountable care organizations, the new effort toward bundled payments for certain surgical procedures, the process of trying to penalize hospitals for excessive readmissions. All of this is coming now out of the Medicare program through new authorities that were enacted in the ACA. And on that score, I'm very, very skeptical that over the long run that that will be a good thing. I think what they've done is very much empower the federal bureaucracy, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to get much more involved in trying to direct from the government's perspective what they view as sort of the ideal way to take care of patients. And that kind of top-down approach to care delivery, I think, really can be, over time, a process that will diminish quality, sort of push us toward a lowest common denominator, not allow enough variation and innovation to occur, and potentially lead to sort of a stagnation in, in the development and progress of the delivery system. Let's talk about that for a second, because bundled payments has become a, a hot term within this overall plan. For instance, macro coming out with alternative payment models. The idea of bundled payments in the healthcare world from the vantage point of uh, a number of healthcare professionals is that based on some modeling that was done in certain specialties, like a patient-centered oncology payment model that's being sort of touted from that end, is that you'd have to increase a number of elements of spending up front, but the dividends down the road could be tremendous. Is that an area that you're skeptical about? Well, I think my, my view is that it, these things are okay so long as there is some accountability to the right party. I think what's happening now is that the federal government sort of views itself as being the agent of change and pushing for these processes to be put in place, and they want the provider community to be accountable to the federal government. I think that sort of got it wrong. I think what we should do here is maybe allow for more capitation, more bundling, more upfront pushing of resources into an integrated type structure, but at the discretion of the participant in the plan, the, the consumer, the beneficiary. If that's the kind of care that they want, if they want to go into an HMO with more bundling and more capitated payments, more population health management, if that's the kind of care delivery structure they prefer, then allow them to opt for that. And then if they don't get the good quality care that they expect, they can then switch out of it later. What I don't like and I don't think is the right way is to have the federal government try to direct the entire delivery system to conform to some governmental standard in this area. I think that's a recipe for really, the government is not very nimble. It doesn't have the ability to make distinctions that are fine and refined in healthcare. And healthcare is so complex and so individualized in a lot of ways. Having this kind of push from the top on how care should be delivered, I think, really just ends up pushing aside some of the nuances that are necessary to understand to really get it right. So is the concept that's touted from the pundits in favor of the ACA as referring to this as a public option, does that come across as farcical in your opinion in terms of the direction being headed? Well, I mean, it's funny that they would bring up the idea of the public option now, to be perfectly honest. I, I you know, it was sort of raised as a just for your listeners, the public option refers to providing an option in the 
ACA's competitive exchanges that would be run by the federal government as an insurance plan that would be offered to consumers. And that new public option would probably look a lot like Medicare in terms of how it's run for, for the elderly. So I find it a little bit ironic that they're bringing this up now because it was brought up and debated in 2009 and 10 and, and, and really was mainly the majority party in the Congress at the time that rejected the idea. And then what was accepted in the, in the bill was kind of a quasi-public option called healthcare co-ops. These are not-for-profit insurance plans that were set up and seeded with federal money and pushed into many states around the country. A huge number of the co-ops, more than 60%, I believe, have now failed and gone bankrupt to the tune of billions of dollars in losses to federal taxpayers. So I don't think now is a particularly good time for them to be bringing up the, the public option. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm speaking with Jim Capretta, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. So, Jim, that's a really interesting bit of information you, you posited there. One of the complaints that has come out about this idea of the public option from several people both at Capitol Hill and in clinical practice is that that public option being underwritten by the government doesn't play by the same economic rules. And a number of articles that you've written, one of the more recent ones called The Increasing Instability of Obamacare, talks about some of the current and downstream effects that's, that are being seen from the provider's standpoint or the insurer's. Can you talk about that? Sure. The ACA exchanges have enrolled about 10 or 11 million people so far in insurance. But what seems to be happening is that they're becoming pools mainly for people that really were probably getting poor insurance before, are heavily subsidized now through the premium credits provided by the ACA, and therefore find it attractive to get this new heavily regulated insurance plan, particularly since they probably aren't eligible in any way for an employer-sponsored coverage. So that's sort of what what is happening in the exchanges. The, The problem is that people with slightly higher incomes above the levels where they get large subsidization through the law have to pay for the premiums largely themselves, and they find the offerings much less attractive because they have high cost sharing, very high deductibles, and also very narrow networks of available physicians. That means that they pay a big premium, a big deductible, and then they can only access certain doctors and hospitals and to many consumers, it just feels like not a, not a terrific financial deal. The result of all that is that the exchanges are not getting the broadest pool of enrollment that they were hoping for, and the premiums are going to have to rise to cover very large losses that the insurers have experienced in the first two and a half years. Estimates are that the aggregate loss in the insurance industry was about $2.7 billion in 2014, perhaps about double that in 2015, and perhaps the same number again in 2016. So all, all, all that said, the insurance industry is big and large, and nobody really feels sorry for it. But at the same time, insurance companies aren't going to take losses on a line of business perpetually. It just doesn't work that way. And so you've seen a lot of withdrawals out of the marketplace, And the number of insurers offering plans in some markets are are now down to one or two. So this is going to be a problem. I think that the sponsors of the law know this, and they're going to try to find a way to stabilize the exchanges, but it'll probably have to happen after the next presidential election. 
And you had mentioned the idea of the reputation of big insurers. Obviously, a lot of consumers, a number of healthcare professionals, they hear some of these complaints from the insurers and they immediately go to conspiracy theory. They think, well, a lot of these premium raises are just a form of punitive action taken to try to weaken the direction of, of the ACA. Do you feel like that there are legitimate issues here economically? I don't think that at all. I mean, uh, no insurance company wants to lose money. So the insurers that have been pulling out of, of the marketplace have been losing a lot of money. And, you know, they don't do that purposely because that comes out of their reports that go to shareholders in, in a lot of cases. And so this is sort of a bad news story for them, not a, you know, not something they can play games with to try to get leverage. So, you know, having said that, the insurers largely went along with the enactment of the ACA in 2010. So they knew what they were getting into. They weren't happy with all of its provisions, but they knew what they were getting into. And so they don't have a great leg to stand on, but they do have the ability and have the right to pull out of markets if they think they're just not stable enough to cover their costs. Well, I'm going to pose a really difficult question for you because it's so open-ended, but it's something that you've devoted a lot of research to, and that is, what comes next? What comes beyond Obamacare to help rectify some of the problems that you've identified? Well, I, th- I think a lot depends on the political outlook, frankly. So there's, you know, maybe two paths to think about. One is a path where, you know, the elections produce a result where the ACA is clearly going to stay in place as it is. And I think at that point, there would be an effort to try to make some changes that would stabilize the insurance structure also make it more attractive to younger and healthier people and allow for some new options to emerge so it isn't so heavily regulated just by the federal government. I think if they loosened some of that and allowed for more innovation and allow for younger people to find a product that really is suitable for them, then they might be able to get to a more stable place in terms of the exchanges. On the delivery system side, I think there's going to have to be some movement back toward, and I think there will be, toward allowing the competition and innovation to occur, allow delivery system reform to occur, but in the context of beneficiary choice, not so much a top-down requirement and regulation coming from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I think that there's going to be a backlash against that eventually, particularly on the physician fee side, and that will force some change in a new direction. If, you know, the leadership at the presidential level moves from one party to the other, you know, I think it's a little bit unclear what might happen. I think there would be a push to try to roll back a lot of the ACA. But I think in House, Republicans have a vision for what they would like to do on health care that is coherent and would make sense. But on the other hand, the executive branch it's not clear if it was under Republican control exactly what priorities they would have. So there's a little bit of a wild card in that particular scenario. So if I had to put the Nostradamus-like hat on, on your head, <laughs> yeah. where, where do you think this would go? I mean, if things are unstable as they are and you're projecting a backlash, let's say, within the next several years, something has to happen to shake things up and to make things better off. Where do you see things going? You know, if I had to predict right now, I would say the ACA won't get repealed. I don't think that's likely to happen. But I think that there will be an effort to eventually, as I said previously, allow younger people to get insurance products that are out right now. The law says you can't charge an older person more than three to one what you're charging 
a younger person in premiums. That's actually, when you look at the data, a pretty constraining requirement that drives up the premiums for young people. And that's one of the reasons why the insurance exchanges is somewhat unstable, are somewhat unstable today. So I think that they need to allow products to be more attractive to younger, healthier people. Uh, that would be step number one. I think Medicare needs to be reformed to move away from centralized management more toward beneficiary choice, sort of an expansion of the Medicare Advantage type structure and allow that to occur throughout the whole Medicare program. And I think Medicaid reform needs to occur to try to improve how it's integrated with the mainstream delivery system and not try to push so many lower income households just to a an overburdened delivery system dedicated only to Medicaid. Well, with those future thinking thoughts, I very much want to thank my guest, Mr. Jim Capretta from the American Enterprise Institute for joining us today. We've been talking about the current and future state of the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare. And Mr. Capretta, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. This has been Voices from American Medicine. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. To access this and other related episodes and to download the ReachMD app, visit ReachMD.com so you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from medical professionals on the front lines of healthcare. To access this program and others in the series, please visit us at reachmd.com forward slash voices.